Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, or as my late friend Clyde Adams used to say, Exploding Explained Phenomena. <laughs> with me is a guy that uh, rarely explodes, and when he does so, it's with exuberance. My friend Jim Shorney. Hi, Jim. That was an interesting intro. Thank you, Scott. Hey, how's your week been? Uh, good week. Uh, made it to work every day, still upright and and uh, happy and living the dream. How did a friend of mine say uh, upright and able to take nourishment? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If, if you don't see your name in the obituaries in the morning, you're doing well. Better to be uh, seen than viewed. Yes. We've got a great show for you. We're going to start things off with Charlene and the Capital Humane Society dogs and cats for adoption and then our buddy Preston Dennett the scene and the unseen he's got a brand new book coming out what a scene yeah and main guests listen to this Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart will be talking about the University of Heaven Moody and Smart hey it's great to have you folks with us whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home now we've got uh, Costa Rican coffee in our cups Mm. What are you sipping on this morning, folks? Are you a, a coffee drinker, a tea drinker? If you're uh, from a younger generation, you may even be having a, a bottle of soda, a bottle of pop, a carbonated beverage. You know, it's interesting what they call those drinks in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Soda and pop and... Coke. Coke. Yeah, just sort of a generic thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, through the miracle of electronic transmissions and wires strung and cables, on the other end of this phone now should be Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, and she's always bright and chipper, and I don't think this is an exception this morning. Hey, Charlene, am I correct? You are right. <laughs> hey, how are things going at the Capital Humane Society? Oh, we're really busy. We have so many animals right now. So if you're looking for a companion pet, please visit us at the Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We especially have so many kittens. So if you're a feline fan, now is a great time to adopt. Uh, okay, so um, are you doing any of the Skybox Passes raffle? So we are, yep. We have Husker Skybox raffle going on. Um, these are a chance to win passes to sit in the East Stadium Skybox during a Husker football game, and you can purchase those at our locations. Um, there's more details on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. And August 6th is Basic Dog Obedience Class. That's right. So we want to help people have the tools to help their animals to be polite. And so they learn sit and stay and leave it. Um, and that it really, really works. It's great for both the owner and the pet. Now, Jim, I, I wasn't attending anything when I just stared at you and said dog <laughs> obedience class, okay? I didn't do well, anything by that. Some people have suggested that I'm untrainable. <laughs> okay, cats and kittens for adoption. Here we go, folks. We have some beauties. Um, we're going to start off with Soulfire. I think that's such a cute name. So Soulfire is on page two at capitalhumanesociety.org. A beautiful gray tabby cat, one year old, a neutered male, medium, soft fur, 
a beautiful cat ready to find a wonderful home with people who just adore him. Yeah, great-looking cat there. Cat has got wisdom. Wow, look at those whiskers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Soulfire uh, Soul has got a buddy. He or she is? Cindy. And Cindy is an orange tabby with long, pretty fur, two years old. She is a little bit shy. She's often kind of hiding, so she'll appreciate a quiet home with good spots where she can feel safe um, and have her me time. Isn't she pretty? She looks uh-huh. a, a little bit fluffy. Yes. Fluffy is right. So maybe a uh, uh, medium hair? Yes. Uh, okay, beautiful cat. Uh, if you're following along at home, this is capitalhumanesociety.org. And we've talked about Soulfire and Cindy. And yet there is another great cat whose name is? Dutch. A very handsome cat, about three years old, domestic short hair, looking for a family that wants to have intelligent companionship. You can tell he's just a really smart guy um, that will definitely make your days brighter. Very smart and stylish, I would say. Uh-huh, yes, yes. Hey, Dutch, put on the rest of your jacket there, will you? (laughs) Okay, lots of fun. Uh, we've got three great cats, Soulfire, Cindy, and Dutch, and they are waiting for you guys and gals. And the uh, Capital Humane Society is open this morning. What are the hours open? Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. And we've got some dogs for adoption. Uh, who's first up for dogs? We're going to start with Hershey. And Hershey's a cutie pie. He is a, uh, excuse me, she is a dachshund Labrador mix. So a short Labrador, (laughs) about a year old, loves to be the center of attention, very, very active and playful. Uh, She's looking for a home with no cats, um, and she does need to meet children and other dogs to make sure she's a good fit for your family. And she apparently has this neat trick where she can flip back one of her ears. That's right. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, if the name alone didn't make you just crave this dog, then we want you to take a look at her picture, CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Hershey is our first dog, and Hershey is joined by... Jax. And Jax has got a really cute picture there. That's thanks to our awesome volunteer photographer. He's about six months old, a Shepherd Pyrenees mix. A real cute dog. He's only six months and already weighs 63 pounds. So he needs a family that understands he's going to be a very large dog and need proper training and care and exercise. Um, but he's a winner, and we know somebody out there is just looking for this dog. Jacks be nimble, Jacks be quick. Okay, Hershey Jacks, and their buddy is Riley, who is a 12 year old boxer. He is very distinguished in his photo there, a gentle dog looking for a family that will take him for walks and give him plenty of belly rubs. He does want to be the one and only dog in the home, so he needs a a home without any other canines. Um, But he is just a charming boxer, and we know the right families out there. Okay, very, very cool. We've got three great dogs, Hershey, Jackson, Riley. What are hours open today? 
We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. And what can what uh, one or two items could people bring out today if they wanted to bring out something to donate? Um, it would be great to bring some dog treats. Our dog walkers always encourage um, good behavior, so when the dogs sit, they get a little reward. So biscuits and dog treats would be so nice. And then we go through a lot of litter for the cats. Okay, there you go, folks. And there's more that you can bring out uh, uh, on the CapitalHumaneSociety.org website. And hope you enjoy the, the cats and dogs for adoption. Charlene, thanks so much for all that you do. And what's in store for you for the rest of the day? Oh, I'll be super busy here at the Adoption Center and at our Intake Center. So we um, have great volunteers, and I will be helping them help us. Okay, thanks so much. My best to all the staff and all the furry friends out there. Thank you for everything. Charlene at the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. And I'm Scott Colborn. And uh, Jim, what do you know about life after life? Uh, it's a controversial subject, and uh, a, a lot of different beliefs, and uh, I guess we can say non-beliefs about that. It's a, a very personal thing, I think, when someone, whether or not they believe in an afterlife, or if they believe that this life is all there is, uh, maybe possible future lives or past lives, uh, there's... I would, I dare say, there's as many different beliefs as there are people on the planet, and uh, it it colors your outlook. I think uh, you've you've probably got a little bit different philosophy on life if you believe that there is something after, or if if you believe that there's a possibility that you may live future lives, as opposed to this is all there is. This is your one shot. Uh, get it right. Do the best you can. So, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think I, we've got a lot of great questions for the main guests coming up here. I, I think so. And uh, the main guests are Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. They're going to be coming up here in a little bit. And let's see. Let me do this. Okay, but our our guest right now... Right now. He is Preston Dennett, and Preston resides in California. He travels. He's a writer of, um, I think, either 16 or 17 books. And uh, Preston, uh, correct me, am I, am I in the vicinity? Am I close? Um, well, it's a little more than that. It's 24. Oh, thank you. You deserve that. I don't want to take <laughs> anything away from you by any stretch. No, that's... That's fantastic. Okay, and so the 24th, the brand new one now, what's going on with that? What's the title? It's called Schoolyard UFO Encounters and was literally just released, like, gosh, three days ago, two days ago. Wow. Really looking, I'm looking forward to this. In fact, we've got you, I think it was a Bob Seger song, Turn the Page. Yeah. I, looking for that page on his schedule here. Yeah, August seventeenth. We've got Preston coming wow. up talking about this book, Schoolyard Just a of weeks. UFO Encounters. Um, 
Tell us what's been going uh, by your desk in the last 30 days. What's really grabbed your interest? What have you heard? What You kind of keep your ear and finger on the pulse of things. What's going on? Oh, gosh, it's always something I tell you. I've got a really interesting near-death account from this guy. Uh, one lady had this incredible ET contact story. Uh, some more schoolyard encounters are coming towards me, but yeah, this ET contact story is really amazing. This lady um, describes a pretty typical encounter in which she was taken on board a craft, and uh, she was given a baby to hold that mm-hmm. was half human, half gray, or looked, you know, like that, and she was told to just hold it and give it affection, and uh, which is pretty standard. It's the sort of thing I've heard before, and uh, that happened in, let's see, 2013, some years ago, uh, not too far back. And uh, she often thinks about it, you know, because it's not that long ago. And uh, it's just, gosh, a few months ago, uh, six months ago or so, she was really meditating on that and what it all meant mm. and reached out to sort of telepathically contact the ETs and got an answer, a very clear answer, and ended up holding an hours-long telepathic conversation with a gray ET who introduced himself as Sen. S-E-N, and started telling her all kinds of stuff. It's really an amazing account and unusual for sure because you know, people do get communication, but generally speaking, not a conversation and not super clear. And they, you know, they're taken on board a UFO, and that's where the conversation happened. Uh, in this case, no, she was at home in her room just sitting there, <laughs> And uh, this ET proceeds to describe how it is, how it owns its own craft. He, presumably, uh, owns his own craft. He's a pilot, and uh, says he comes from this particular planet. And showed her the planet. It's very much like Earth, a planet with a very beautiful planet with lots of water. And uh, said that he was a race of these ETs who was contacting humans because of our emotions. And this is, again, something I've heard before. But, boy, she really mm-hmm. described it clearly. He said, very, this E.T. told her that very long ago they were just like us, very human-looking, very beautiful, and reproduced like humans do, uh, but were evolving and wanted to explore space. And as a result, tried to uh, genetically manipulate themselves. And in doing so lost their emotions. And uh, that was basically the gist of the entire conversation, was how that happened. And uh, they said that reproduction became uninteresting and no fun for them. And uh, they began to use cloning. And uh, this at one point became a problem. And they started having real problems reproducing. And that's when they contacted us and found that we have a very emotional vibration, which they're very attracted to. And that's why they contacted her. They told her they put an implant in her ear, and they're monitoring her through that. And uh, that while we eat through a process of food and sunlight, and that's how we get our energy, they get their energy through a process that they call resonance, where they hook up to people of similar vibration and get their energy that way, which is something I haven't heard before. 
I found that kind of interesting. And they told her about her baby and that, yeah, it had pieces of that were genetically hers, but mostly it was about her vibration that they were interested in. She's a really interesting lady, very loving, very nurturing, um, a very good soul, you know, a very good person. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I found that just fascinating that really their whole thing was all about emotion. They have no desire to take over our planet. They don't like being around humans because we're much too emotional, but they're very attracted to our emotions. So that was just a really interesting conversation she had with this ET. It's just, gosh, I don't know, I find it fascinating. Uh, years ago, I teamed up with a psychologist um, who had a particular specialty in hypnosis, and the psychologist was interested in reports of people with onboard close encounter experiences. And my job was basically to be the timekeeper, um, the guy that recorded the sessions, turned the lights on and off, etc. And uh, one individual that uh, the psychologist and I did multiple sessions with uh, had the ability of, in the middle of this deep hypnosis session, to literally become sort of a channel, if you will, for uh, an ET. And so there was, as you just mentioned, there was direct uh, contact and information and exchanges taking place. And I found that very interesting. Wow. Yeah, this ET told her that they're actually not physical in the sense that we are, that they would probably be more accurately defined as astral beings which is another really interesting point that they talked about. Well, you know, I've got a theory that's where part of my missing socks go. You know, when you put X number of socks in the dryer and you pull them out and there's ones missing, I think there's actually portals that either knowingly or unknowingly are built into these dryers that that's where some of the socks are going. Actually, and this is something that's well known to people that are in electronics, but there's a a warp zone a half inch off the floor if you drop a screw, you can hear it hit the floor, but it has completely vanished. Until you walk into the room in bare feet at 3 o'clock in the morning looking for your glasses. A different room in the house. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it transports. It, it, yeah, it teleports to a different location. Uh, so wow. You must have so many interesting reports that cross your desk. Uh, Preston, what do you... Given that you've written a book on UFO healings that runs in excess of 500 pages, and by the way, is a must-read for anybody that is interested in this literature, what do you think of this this idea that there is a threat? Um, we have uh, TV shows that, that are using that term in terms of of uh, trying to adjust awareness as we see these beings from elsewhere. And they're using this, this word. Uh, there is a Facebook group that is quite vocal, uh, that is uh, got that in the title. Uh, I've not seen any threat at all. I mean, where is this coming from? Yeah, I, I understand that people are nervous about the whole UFO phenomenon. And uh, not all encounters are pleasant. I have to say, I mean, I think it'd be terribly naive to say that everyone out there is our friend. 
That's a very wide universe. But I think we're dealing with entities very much like us. And uh, I don't think it's a threat. I think that we have a very a problem with our emotions. We're very fear-based. We've got a lot of fear in society. And uh, I think that's really the problem. It's us, not them. Uh, it's how we view the universe. I think if we were able to look at things more objectively, uh, we'd see that um, they're benevolent for the most part. But not all of them. So, I mean, we, we, I think it, it is important to, you know, be aware, to be able to make distinctions, and uh, look at each case on an individual basis. Uh, I'm not so, so sure we can just lump them all together and say, oh, these are all greys. Know, and they're not emotional, or you know, the, all the Nordics, so the human-looking ones, are friendly, or all you know, reptilians are bad. This, this lady I interviewed, uh, the ET told her about the reptilians and said that they come from our planet and have been here for a long time, and were actually survivors of the dinosaur age. That there were intelligent dinosaurs and they were around during that time. So I don't know. It's just. A, such a big pill to swallow for some people who have not looked into this that I can see why there's some trepidation there. I'm fond of the the quote from the late Carl Jung where he talked about the uh, the term was Army Air Force. That was an early term for the Air Force before they separated. Uh, that he said if the Army Air Force has got information about the flying saucer, they should release it to the public because the suppression of that would do far more damage than the, than the truth. And then he said it, uh, it, it's been bantied about that people can't handle the truth. And he pointed out that every day during the 1960s, we grew up, we went to work, paid taxes, were in relationships, went to church, etc., with the threat of the H-bombs uh, over our head, and that people in various parts of the world had fingers poised over this launch sequence uh, that would annihilate all living life on Earth in um, a few minutes. And he said, if the human race can live with that, they can certainly live with the knowledge that we're not alone and that there are visitors here. So I agree that the idea of you can't handle the truth is actually we can't handle the lies. And that's a real problem. I'm applauding you. That's a great quote. <laughs> we can handle right. the truth. We can't handle lies. That is wonderful. Good one, Preston. It's very damaging because you start to not trust people and you start to really question what the truth is. And uh, it's very important that everyone be as honest as they can with each other. I think that's what we're evolving towards. I'm very hopeful about our future. I think we're progressing as a species very quickly. And that's causing some friction, for sure. But ultimately, it's good news. And I think that's what the ETs are part of this. This whole UFO movement is raising our vibration, raising our awareness, and pulling us into the galactic community. It's going to be great. But right now, it's a little freaky for some people who have never had to deal with this. Uh, in two weeks, we have Preston back on the show with his brand new book. This is just printed a couple days ago. Schoolyard UFO Encounters. Not just one or two. The subtitle is 100 True Accounts. 
and you probably tallied now even more than that. Yeah, I have to admit, there's probably closer to 120 in the book, and I just got another one yesterday. Someone saw the book come out, and it's like, oh my gosh, I've never told this to anyone, but I had that exact thing happen to me. And uh, yeah, this is apparently a huge thing. I had no idea. I, mean, I literally wept as I wrote this book. Some of these chapters just really touched me, because they're involving very young children. Half the cases... Scott, are elementary school-aged children. Mm -hmm. So this is a very emotional and poignant uh, subject, especially I mean, for these kids. Well, we're looking forward to uh, reading the book and also to have you on the show here. And uh, I think this is a very important subject. Um, it's important for us in our awareness and knowledge base, and I think it's also important for these, uh, these other beings. You know, I'm less and less wanting to use the term alien, uh, and I'm getting more comfortable with a term that, that Hunter Gray used, uh, simply other people. That they, I like that, yeah. They, I hate the term, like, creatures. <laughs> oh, yeah. That always bothers me. And, you know, we stumble around entities, beings. Figures. That's another term I kind of like, figures, uh, because it's neutral. But again, it's sort of lumping them into this us and them sort of category. Mm -hmm. When really, that's I love that term, people, other people, friends. Yeah. Space Brothers has a little bit of negative connotation from the contactee era. But that's probably closely accurate. Yeah, because, you know, metaphysically, if you if you follow the world teachings that we're all connected, that we're all related through this creation source that some people call by different names, that means that they are part of that just as we are. And as that Catholic theologian said in the uh, Vatican newspaper, the alien is my brother. So these other people um, and us, we are related. Well, and in, in some works of science fiction, beings from other planets are simply thought of as another form of humanity. Yeah. I mean, to us, I mean, to them, we are extraterrestrials. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> okay, Preston, we, we've got to go here. We're looking forward to talking with you again in two weeks. And 24 books, my friend, congratulations. What are you doing for the rest of the weekend? I'm going to relax mostly. Good. <laughs> I've been really busy. Oh, I so bet. Do a little gardening, um, mostly some cleaning, and just relax. Good. Okay, Preston, we sure appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Hey, always a pleasure. Preston Dennett. And if you type in his name, Preston Dennett, to any search engine, he's going to pop right up. The author of 24 books, including Schoolyard UFO encounters. Looking forward to having him on in two weeks. Jim, I'm going to take um, a well-deserved, but we need to do this, the bottom of the hour break, mm -hmm. as you make some phone calls, and we'll get uh, Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart on the phone here. I'm on it. Okay, guys and gals, stay tuned. Um, if you like so far what you heard, there's more coming up. We sure appreciate you out there. Stay tuned for more.
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model back. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. That's music from Enigma. Catch them around uh, southeast Nebraska. They provide the music for the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena broadcast. And uh, Carolyn and Dave are great musicians. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena 
Uh, Mr. Shorney is running back and forth between the outside and the air studio, and now he's helping both of us with uh, more coffee. Costa Rican this morning. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart to the show. They have founded, among many, many projects, solo and joint, the University of Heaven. This is an online educational platform committed to offering quality courses and resources about near-death, shared death, and after-death experiences. The website content is curated by Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart, researchers in the field of consciousness studies. Other pioneering investigators will join us, offering insights into afterlife experiences and those associated with the transpersonal dimensions of grief and dying. The intention of the University of Heaven is to foster greater compassion and insight and offer tools that will allow all of us to bring a little heaven to earth, reading from the website. Dr. Moody is the author of multiple books, including Life After Life, that came out, I think, in 1975, and Glimpses of Eternity. Lisa Smart is the author of Words at the Threshold and founder of the Final Words Project. And uh, Dr. Moody and Ms. Smart, it's great to have you both with us. Thank you Thank so you. much, Mr. Colburn, for having us today. I really appreciate this. Dr. Moody, let's ask you first, um, what part of the world, sir, are you in as we talk to you? I am about 80 miles due east of Atlanta in a little town called Oxford, Alabama. Okay, and uh, uh, Miss Smart, where do we find you this morning? Not too far away from uh, Raymond. I am in Athens, Georgia, and it's about 70 miles north of Atlanta, and I'm here because of Raymond. I moved out here from California. Um, it's great to have you back on the program. You've been here before, and uh, I'm, I'm just excited as all get out to talk about this new project, the University of Heaven, can you give us, uh, I've read a little bit about the, the project from your website, but um, how did you both get together and, and decide on how to go forward with this? Well, from my point of view, I love teaching. I, uh, before I went to medical school, I got a Ph.D. in philosophy, and I was a philosophy professor for a while. And um, so I, I just really love teaching. And... Um, I had noticed over the years that a lot of times the public discourse on these near-death experiences and the whole idea of an afterlife um, are get a little bit silly, to tell you the truth, and uh, kind of irresponsible. So I've always wanted a forum where I could just teach, and being a social phobic, um, traveling is tough for me, so um, we developed this. I'm not so good at computers, but Lisa is, and we set up this platform where we have um, webinars. We've had uh, really great um, experts on near-death experiences like Eben Alexander and uh, Dr. Anthony Chikoria, the uh, orthopedic surgeon who had a profound near-death experience, and um, we've, we've just had a lot of really interesting scholars who have done 
serious studies of uh, near-death experiences on our webinars. Yeah, generally, Raymond has really, um, you know, he suggested, and I agree wholeheartedly, to really the people that we have on generally are, you know, MDs, so they bring in their perspectives as uh, scientifically trained, and um, it, it gives the website a slightly different feeling than a lot of what you might see out there. And I'm a linguist, and my my research was done kind of in the spirit of, you know, an analytical and critically minded perspective. So we want to, you know, it, it, the it has that bias or that flavor to it. And um, one of the courses I'm most excited about, or I'm working on right now, I'm finishing it up, is about the psychomantium. Um, and teaching people how to use it. Raymond, can you say more about it? Because I think you'll do a better job explaining it. Well, I don't know that I will do a better job, Lisa, because <laughs> you're great. But, but I sort of came across this. Um, you know, I am such a bore, as all my friends know, because everything I'm interested in, really, goes back to two things. Um, astronomy and uh, my interest in uh unintelligibility, like things that don't make sense, which are the, you know, that's a very important concept in philosophy. And um, when I was 18 years old, I got hooked on the story of ancient Greek philosophy. And um, that's how I came across both near-death experiences, because Plato, a lot of these early Greek philosophers were interested in these cases of people who almost died but revived. And had these experiences to talk about. Matter of fact, it's a really part of the foundation stones of uh, the Western way of thinking. And uh, in that connection, I also learned in Herodotus and uh, Aristophanes and just the books you read about Greece that um, there were these institutions in ancient Greece called oracles of the dead. And according to the historians and the people who wrote about them, you could go to these places, which were subterranean uh, facilities, and you could go through procedures during which you would seem to see and converse with um, apparitions of the departed. Well, I remember reading that at age 18, and in my superior mentality being a know-it-all at age 18, <laughs> it was obvious to me that that was just legendary. But back in the 80s, one of the most, the, the most famous oracle of the dead was actually found and excavated. And based on what they found in there, which was in the apparition chamber, this enormous bronze cauldron surrounded by a uh, banister, sort of, and it appeared that when people were seeing the apparitions, they would be looking in the direction of the cauldron, and immediately I saw what they were doing and realized it was would work, because uh, I had known from my studies of altered states of consciousness that many people, when they gaze into what's called an optical clear depth, it could be a highly polished cauldron or silver bowl filled with olive oil and then in a darkened room by candlelight or a mirror and when you gaze into that surface many people when they get relaxed will see really quite striking uh, eidetic images i mean they they appear completely lifelike and so to make a long story short in 1990 i set it up and um 
I have just a, a simple room with a mirror in front and the darkened room, a comfortable chair and a little light in behind, behind the chair. And um, the most important part of this is um, the preparation, which is somewhat like um, uh, grief counseling, which I do in my profession. And you uh, you just get the people to talk about the loved one who had died. And uh, after this preparation, they sit in this room, and uh, many people, matter of fact, about 50 to 60% of people on the very first attempt will have um, very lifelike apparitional occurrences, which they take to be real events. I'm emphasizing that, that it seems to them them to be a real event, although, you know, how you would you know is a, is a different question, but um, this has been um, reproduced subsequently the time that I did it by many other scholars, and uh, matter of fact, it was in a recent textbook of, uh, of advice for grief therapists and so on on how to do this, and it's a, historically, it's a, um, a part of Western culture that's always been there. And so that's what the Psychomantion is. And in this program we've done, um, we have a, a fascinating uh, woman who's a writer and uh, uh, therapist who uh, went in to see her son who had died and had a very um, dramatic uh, apparition of her son. And Basically, what the the webinar does is that it teaches you how to do this for yourself because uh, as exotic as it may seem, it's actually part and parcel of the Western uh, intellectual tradition. Mm -hmm. it, uh, so in the, in the Harry Potter movies, there were these mirrors that occasionally some of the past teachers at Hogwarts would mm -hmm. appear and they could move yeah. from mirror to mirror as if they were mm. just simply stepping from uh, just a couple of steps from one location to another, and they'd be at the other part of the of the uh, of Hogwarts of college. If um, uh, I've got to say, it's, it happens in my place all the time. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, this is just so darn counterintuitive to people, but the reality is, this has been known throughout history that. Um, when you gaze into the mirror, for example, very often the apparitions, they may form up in the mirror, but they seem to actually step out of the mirror into the room fully three-dimensional and so on. A lot of us encounter this is when we're kids and the story of Aladdin and the lamp and um, the full-blown translations of the Arabian Nights Entertainment show make take care to specify that this was a brass lamp. And what happened was Aladdin and his mother decide to sell it. So um, Aladdin's mother takes fine sand, which would be an abrasive, and polishes the brass lamp. And it's in that reflective surface where they first see the genie who then comes out of the mirrored surface into the environment and... Um, it's really quite dramatic when this mm -hmm. happens, but it's uh, yet once you experience it, you realize that it's it's just part of our um, our mental makeup that, that that many people can experience this. 
Lisa, have you taken part in the psychomantium? I have twice. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I'm, I'm pretty um, imaginative and open-minded in, in that kind of way. I mean, I do... Um, you know, I have had images of ancestors and spirits talking to me, things like that. I mean, I have that mm-hmm. that you know element to me, but I haven't had anything really striking in the psychomantium, but I've only gone in twice. And people really vary. And I also think that um you know, you have to get in the in the workshop or the recorded class that we do, we talk about, you know, you really have to get just the right uh height and and adjust everything so it's um the right combination so i've only gone twice so i didn't have a chance to make those adjustments and some of us i think raymond would you say 50 to 60 percent right so i might yeah. be part of that 40 to 50 percent who is not inclined to have that experience so uh, 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 raymond and lisa if we had a uh, camera trained on the the polished surface, be it a oh, wow. darkened mirror or uh, the reflection of a in a pool of olive oil or, or or water, and the individual um, began to experience this apparition, uh, would that also be picked up by the camera? And this leads me then to just speculation that the ingredients for this, the primary ingredient is that individual or that person. Mm. Uh, In other words, if Raymond and Lisa, if that person were not in the psychomantium, would the camera record anything happening in that polished surface and the the water, the the oil? uh, Or does that person... Are they the necessary ingredient to the the catalyst, if you will? Well, personally, from my experience, I think that consciousness is necessary for this, that this is a Mm -hmm. phenomenon of consciousness. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I will say that there are abundant cases, and there could be plenty of cases, in which people... Uh, separate people saw the apparition simultaneously. That has oh, wow. that has occurred, but immediately I should go on to say that that doesn't mean that it's therefore objective, whatever objective may mean. Because you could imagine that since people were prepared simultaneously, this it's not too surprising that they would have a simultaneous apparitional experience. And however. Now, number one, I am the probably one of the least mechanical people on the face of the earth. So I have never tried the camera approach, the uh, like or a video camera or something. But I, I think I know what what would happen in that kind of um, scenario. And what I think would happen if you did say fifty of them then you'd probably get about five of them where there was some kind of disturbance or, you know, appearance on the camera screen. And that what would happen was that some people would look at it and say, why, that's grandma just as sure <laughs> as I'm shooting. I mean, that's her nose there. I would recognize it anywhere. 
Whereas other people would look at the same disturbance on the on the camera and say, "Oh, that's just static and you know electrical um, fields uh, making that." You know, so I am not a parapsychologist in the sense right. that um, I think what this is all about is consciousness and consciousness and language. Um, you, know, you know, yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Whenever we uh, hear about a near-death experience or whatever, as I tried to point out in my original book, Life After Life, we're always dealing here with narratives. So um, you can't really, I think, be a good researcher into the paranormal unless you really pay attention to the language and the structures mm -hmm. of language that are used to express these things. But we, I think that's the most vital factor in uh, addressing paranormal things. And I, I raise that question with great respect, and I'm, I'm not trying to suggest oh, that, yeah. that unless oh, you've I got understand. video proof that it's not, oh, not occurring. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, you're, yeah. Uh, that was a great question to raise because it, it is something pe that naturally occurs to people and it, it needs to be addressed. So that's the, a really good point. Mm -hmm. But it also gets at the heart of the whole question about consciousness, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I, I'm working on a book now called In the Realm of Engagement. And we know that sometimes just by engaging, Raymond often says that he doesn't, quote, believe in God, but he has a relationship to God. And I feel the same way. I can't tell you that I can prove to you that God exists, but it's been my experience that if I, you know, pray for certain things or, or not, you know, pray every day, that there's this relationship that builds with something that you could call source. I have no idea what it is, really, but it seems to work just by being engaged. Or, you know, I could even tell you that love doesn't exist. I can't prove that love exists, but I know when I wake up and I, you know, turn to someone I love and give them a hug, just by being engaged in love, it, it fosters and grows. So there's this sort of realm of life that's engagement, and each one of us has a different experience of whatever we're engaging with. So my experience of God is, I, I would guess, really different than Raymond's, but still something is going on. So the, the, your question is really interesting to me, and, and um, you know, I would love to try that. I'm so glad you asked, because that would be, or if maybe someone out in your audience would be interested in doing that research and getting back to us, mm -hmm. um, what they discover. It's a, it's a great question and, and very thought-provoking. Uh, this is Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart, uh, and the website, it's very easy to find the University of Heaven.com. And another one for you, FinalWordsProject.org. And we're going to give these out again uh, in the show. Stay tuned. We're going to take the top of the hour break. We'll be back with Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. Our program theme today is the University of Heaven. I'm Scott Colborn along with Jim Shorney, and you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. 
Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And by Maha Music Festival, Friday and Saturday, August 16th and 17th at Omaha's Exarban Village, featuring Lizzo, Jenny Lewis, Muscle Cousins, Shark Week, Omaha Girls Rock, and annual four-day music and art festival, September 18th through 22nd in downtown Lincoln featuring workshops and panel discussions on wellness, entrepreneurship, music, and culture, plus over 80 bands at eight venues, as well as an outdoor night market. Full lineup and other festival info on Facebook and lincolncalling.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress, but big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model, and the young me needed a role model back. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We started this program uh, over 34 years ago as a way to uh, have people on the show and talk about subjects that weren't being covered by the mainstream media. And we've enjoyed this incredible experience. Some of you folks listening have been with us almost since day one. Others have joined the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena family more recently. We really appreciate you being a part of this whole endeavor. Uh, we circle around the radio or the computer every Saturday morning from 10 o'clock to 12 noon, and we have stimulating and thought-provoking discussions with people such as today's guests, Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. We also have a free archive. This show will be posted and available free of charge by about next Friday, and it's simple to find. It's kzum.org slash E-U-P. It's all free of charge, and it's our continuing gift, as well as the gift from our listeners, our supporters, and our guests to you folks out there. With us today is Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart, We've been talking about their uh, collaborative effort called the University of Heaven, and they both have uh, 
interest in language. As Raymond and Lisa, as we were talking here in this first part of the show, you know, something struck me. Uh, I have been interested in the UFO phenomenon for many, many years with a special regard to people's experiences with these other people, these other sentient beings. And one of the critiques is that the conversation from these other people is nonsensical. Oftentimes yeah. it doesn't make sense. There was a early UFO report from outside Omaha, Nebraska, back in the early 1900s, where this guy saw this craft floating overhead, and uh, somebody put down a rope ladder and basically climbed down to solid ground. So this guy walked up and said, where are you from? And in English, the person responded and said, well, uh, I'm from a place far, far away from here, but I'll be in Chicago by tomorrow. (laughs) And in the early 1900s, you couldn't get from Omaha to Chicago uh, by tomorrow. Uh, And all these reports that I've read over the years that sometimes are very critically bashed by people within the UFO community as well as outsiders who say, of these messages from these quote-unquote space brothers, they just don't make sense. And now I'm, I'm, again, my ears perk up with your combined interest in making sense of nonsense. Yes, Scott, I absolutely agree with that. And I, too, am really just fascinated and always have been about the uh, possibility of communication with uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and um you know somebody you should look up he's he's somebody that an analytic philosopher would know about but he's not very well known in the the community of people who study um extraterrestrial communication his name was cj lichtenberg and he was a philosopher and scientist german philosopher and scientist of the 18th century, who some of his ideas helped formulate modern analytic philosophy. And what Lichtenberg... Lichtenberg was interested in what we today call the the incommensurability problem, which is that we can't really just be sure beforehand that a communication from another species of intelligence would be intelligible to us. Mm-hmm. Um, Lichtenberg said something like, a, uh, an alien intelligence to an alien intelligence, seven plus four, maybe 13, that you, you can't just assume that the uh, structures of rational intelligence, which we have, which were developed very contingently. I mean, you know, you there could have been other paths of development from the way ours came about was through about 19 men in ancient Greece who really put together the Western way of thinking. Well, you know, what if they got it wrong a little bit, which, you know, some, some parts they did. So 
it's a fascinating question that uh, we should be open to the possibility that the very first communications from um, a hyper-intelligent or another form of intelligence in another part of the universe might sound to us like nonsense. Jim, isn't there a famous famous Star Trek um, uh, episode where they're trying to communicate with these other beings who don't speak in language, but they speak in terms of evoking pictures and memories and, uh, and feelings. Darmok. Yeah, remember That's that episode? Darmok and Gillard at Tanagra. Yeah, <laughs> on the on the banks of the something. Yeah, they they spoke in stories basically. Yeah, so that's exactly uh, Raymond what what you're referring to. This is an example right there of of I'm trying to put words together to form a sentence to convey um, thoughts, feelings, emotions. What if somebody used language to do the same thing, but they did it in a different way? Right, Lisa. Right, and we, I, in the research that I did with people who are psychics, who have very strong abilities telepathically and also in terms of precognition, anyway, different psychics, they often see in pictures, and that, mm-hmm. and that the pictures are often symbolic. And uh, several psychics explained to me that they had their own iconography where they would learn to understand, you know, if an apple appeared for them, what it would mean, and so forth. So. It's, uh, you know, language is not, one of the big things I've learned from the Final Words Project is language is not just literal. As a matter of fact, literal language, literal spoken language, linguistic language is not, um, is only one piece of how communication Mm -hmm. occurs. So I, I just, and one of the things Raymond and I have talked about a lot and have come to discover, I think, in our research is that when you see any change in dimension or cross-dimensionality, you often find nonsense. So it's not surprising to me to hear the accounts that you're sharing. I've never heard those before. That's such great information. So thank you for that, Scott. But, um, you know, there there may be, right, some kind of shift in dimension. So it's interesting because basically we've looked at shift of dimension and change of language into being more nonsensical at end of life when people are having the experience of perhaps transitioning right to, to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But maybe also those UFO experiences, right? That's maybe another dimension, right? So really interesting, really interesting information. Thank you for that. Raymond and Lisa, what lies at the end of our interest in your work, is it that that we have a hope that what is real about each of us continues? Mm-hmm. We have that same hope for those that we love. And as much as I try to practice being a, a good Christian, sometimes I hope that my enemies don't end up in the same place, <laughs> same way. Is it that is that part of our our fascination? God, I have really struggled with that one for many years. The reason being, I just had zero religious. I remember once when I was twelve years old, my dad drug us to this Presbyterian church. I'm a Presbyterian. Three weeks. I get it. And it retrospectively, <laughs> it's plain that he was 
going through his midlife crisis. He was 38 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I see now that he, but he would always kind of down talk religion. Then so, but I just really, when I went to college at age 18, I just had no notion that there was anybody who took the notion of an afterlife seriously. And the first person I encountered who took it seriously was Plato. So that's where my thought in all this began. And in 1965, I met a wonderful man named George Ritchie, who at that time was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, who had had such an experience. And I knew, hearing him the first time, that he was real. That is, that he was sincerely reporting what happened to him. But I had no way of making up my mind about what these things mean. And by the time I got to medical school, it was obvious to me that these things don't have anything to do with oxygen deprivation to the brain, like the the sort of standard line is. Because one of my own medical school professors told me about how she had the same experience of leaving her body and seeing this light and seeing her mother's not when she herself came near to death, but rather when she was trying to resuscitate her own mother who passed away. She's the physician herself. So mm-hmm. the physician was not ill or injured. There was no oxygen deprivation to her brain. And, and I have hundreds and hundreds of cases where the bystanders have the same experience of seeing the light and getting out of their bodies, even empathically co-living the dying life review of the person who passed away. But I still just didn't, couldn't put it together until about, I guess, five or six years ago now, Scott. I, I don't know if you've encountered the remarkable case of um, Jeff Olson and Jeff O'Donnell. Jeff, Jeff Olson is a, is a um, graphic artist who some years ago was in a horrible car crash in which his wife was killed instantly and um, one of his children were killed and another child uh, lived through the crash and uh, Jeff had his uh, leg crushed in the accident, lost lost his leg and um, he had a profound near-death experience and when he told the experience to Jeff O'Donnell, the emergency physician who was on call that night when he came in, uh, Jeff O'Donnell said, yeah, well, I haven't told anybody this, but that night you came in the hospital, I knew you weren't going to die because I talked to your wife in the emergency room, the, the wife who was dead. And, um, you know, cases like that where the doctor is, is empathically involved in the dying experience of the patient, I give up. I mean, I I realize that it, there's still many difficulties about the whole notion of an afterlife. Exactly what do we mean by it even? But um, I, in my own life, and I certainly would not try to persuade anybody else of this. This is a personal process that everybody is going to go through in their own way, but to me, I I have sort of accepted that to my utter astonishment that when you die, your consciousness just 
sort of comes to in another frame of reference, uh, a sort of non-spatial, non-temporal um, domain, which is even more real than this thing we're in. That's what I hear constantly from people with near-death experiences is uh, far from being dreamlike that this near-death experience was more real than real is what I hear from people. Mm-hmm. Lisa, the research, oh, I'm sorry. Do you want yeah. to add to that, Lisa? Yes. Um, you know, the research that I've done with the Final Words Project that has been documented by so, you know, many of the researchers um, is that people, right before they die, they have bedside visitations, right? So, uh, and from predeceased relatives or, or um, friends and so forth. So very typically, and now this is an established piece of knowledge um, in the medical community. If you look on WebMD now, they talk about this phenomenon of right before someone passes, they'll see their ex, you know, their husband, um, their mother, their brother who had passed away, and they show up like a takeaway figure. Peter Fenwick also wrote about this. And you, they'll have conversations with loved ones who are in the other world. And a very high percentage of people, um, you know, 70% have this occur. I mean, 70, uh, uh, Christopher Kerr and his team say it might be as high as 80%. Um, so how do you explain this? Is everybody having these hallucinations? You know, <laughs> is it just that, or is something very real? And people do have experiences of angels. My father, who was a complete skeptic, um, had ta- started talking about angels before he died. And that was one of the things that brought me to the research because I thought, how can a skeptic like my father talk about angels? There must be something going on here. Um, and that's just one of many things that really has convinced me that something exists. Now, what it is, I can't tell you. And <laughs> that I, I don't know. But I do know that something, there is something most certainly beyond this dimension as we know it. Raymond and Lisa, do you have a sense when you are in a quiet space, perhaps late at night, and doing some reflection, do you have a sense that in deep regard that that your lives have been led, that there's been something that has been gently leading you, prodding you, um, helping you to take a small step and another step. There's a there's a book by Sherry Huber, who is a Zen teacher and. It has a remarkable title that, that will play into this question I'm asking of you. It's, the title is, um, That Which You Are Seeking Is Causing You to Seek. <laughs> exactly. Uh, either one of you want to take a, a, a go at that? Do you ever feel like yeah. you're being led or, or guided? Oh, my goodness. I so, I mean, I completely, my life now, when I was younger, I had hints of it, and now it's just the only way that I live. And um, the Final Words Project, I mean, I had a very secure job back in California, and, you know, a great, I was on my way to having a great pension, and, <laughs> and you know, life was good. <laughs> and then my father passed away, 
and something, I, I witnessed something. I witnessed changes in his language. I mm-hmm. witnessed changes in, in his perceptions. And I just knew that I had to study this. And synchronistically, a few weeks later, a friend of a friend told me about Raymond Moody teaching in Alabama. And very synchronistically, a few days later, my tax refund came so I could afford to go to this seminar where Raymond was teaching. And I felt through the whole process that I was completely being navigated by something different than me, or maybe you want to see bigger than than me. And um, it's when that happens in life, when you feel that sense of purpose and connection to something bigger than yourself, in my case, I followed the call. You know, I quit a great job. I left Napa, California. It's beautiful. You know, I had a very beautiful life there to come and move to Georgia so I could be close to Raymond and do this research. And I do not regret it ever. I'm so grateful. And I hope that my work has been of service to other people. Um, and because for me, that's usually what the call, any kind of call is about. Mm-hmm. So I very, the more I live, um, the more I, my life is about that, is about identifying every day, every morning, what is that pull? And the more I seek to find it, the more I feel it, and the more I live that way, and the the more I enjoy my life, and I think, and I hope, the more I am of service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Scott, I have, and I suspect you have had that experience, too, from the tone of your question, but definitely, um, I... Uh, my life has had these amazing intersections with this man that I mentioned earlier, Dr. George Ritchie, the mm-hmm. psychiatrist at UVA. And um, I heard him speak about his experience in uh, 1965. I was, uh, I guess, 20 years old. And his experience, George is from Richmond, Virginia. And his experience took place when he was a recruit in the army in uh, in in um, Camp Barkley, Texas, in 1943. And uh, so I heard Dr. Ritchie; he had inspired me to write this book after my book was published. And I should tell you that my mother and father are from Porterdale, Georgia. <laughs> After my book was published, I learned from my father that I was there in utero at at Camp Barkley, Texas. My mother and father had moved to Camp Barkley in early September 1943 so that my dad could go to officer's candidate school. I was conceived in late September 1943. George's experience was December 24th, 1943, and my mother and father moved away from Camp Barkley December 29th, 1943, so I was there in utero (laughs) when this experience took place that changed my life. Now, subsequently, and I won't go into the details, but several times at very critical junctures in my life, it's like George Ritchie would just suddenly appear. I mean, I won't go into it, but <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. I mean, I give up. You know, I mean, these things are. I, I, Ellie Beasel said, and this is a remark that came back to me. I'd read it years ago, but 
it came back to me a few years ago when I was waking up in the morning. Ellie Wiesel said, God made man because he loves stories. <laughs> and you know, what is your personal identity but your life story, right? So as I gather, I don't know what you might have come to on this, but it looks to me like life is a story and then you finish up one story and just like Plato says, you go through some sort of incomprehensible process and then you're back here on another storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- yeah. Please, Lisa, go ahead. Oh, yeah, and then um, when you have your life review, people describe their life reviews uh, You know, when they have these near-death experiences. And one of the qualities is you look at your life, it's sort of you rewind the story, right? And, and people see it in different ways or experience it. So... You know, we move, I, Raymond says this often, and I love it. We move through life going forward, you know, there's a sense of moving forward. But from all the reports we've heard that when you're in the afterlife, then there's this experience of actually then you kind of move through it in another direction or another way, another perspective, and also through the eyes of the people you've hurt. So mm-hmm. you have a whole other perspective, not just in terms of the forward motion of time, but also in terms of other people's experience and your own experience of, of occurrences. Uh, Ida Cannonberg was a, um, <clears throat> a contactee uh, who is deceased now. She wrote a self-published manuscript on the contact experience as an initiation. And she mm-hmm. talked about these initiations that are subtle, that are large that we experience in our lives Mm -hmm. and when I read and then talked with Ida it reminded me that uh, I had an initiatory experience when I was eight when a um, seed technologist colleague of my father was visiting dad he had his seed technology lab in our basement so he had the world's shortest commute and (laughs) Dad walked into the playroom. I had my army guy spread all over the floor playing with my soldiers and stuff. And Dad said, um, this is so-and-so from Canada. And I kind of saw these two pairs of trousered legs and from my place in the floor. And I looked up, and here's my dad and this stranger. And Dad said, and he knows that you've got an interest in reading, so he brought a book for you. And the gentleman handed me the book, and I kind of pushed some toys aside and put the book down, and it was a pictorial book of pictures of flying saucers and UFOs. <laughs> and I, I looked at these pictures, and I turned page after page. I have no idea where my dad and his colleague went, but suddenly I was just totally engrossed. And I, I remember thinking as an 8-year-old, wow, if these are real, this really changes the way that I look at things, and wouldn't it be great to be older and be involved in finding out more about this stuff? Uh, And so here I am. You know, we've done the the show for 34 years, and I've had people like yourselves on the show uh, as kind of a fulfillment for this initiation. Uh, When my mother was still living, I tried several times to try to find out more about 
who this mysterious guy was, and we could never come to a firm conclusion. Um, I'm willing to accept that this was a, a vision. I'm willing to accept that it was a real experience because the effect, the end result, was the same on me. It's a marker and initiation that began to, the whole process for me of opening, uh, opening many doors. And I only share that because I, I hope that other people out there in the audience can think about times in their lives where it appears as if there was something uh, helping, guiding, assisting. Yeah. And maybe we're not, maybe we're not alone here. Oh, what a, that's a great story. That's, I agree, yeah. I mean, this is, life is so mysterious. You know, um, if you, you take, for example, the subjective-objective uh, distinction. Mm-hmm. And I've always been philosophical. I, uh, people think of me as a medical doctor, but I was a philosophy professor long before I went to medical school. So I think philosophically. And uh, I've noticed that when they get into their 50s and 60s and 70s, if you ask a bunch of people in that age range, if they've had the experience that they remember when they were young, that the subjective-objective distinction was very clear to them. I remember as a kid, um, when I first looked through a telescope, it made me... I was about eight years old. I reflected on my conscious self and the amazing fact that I am conscious now. And I realized that I can be sure that I'm conscious now, but the apparent physical world, that's the only reason I think that there's a physical world is because of recurrent patterns in my consciousness, right? So that thought has always been with me. And what I have noticed, and what I can guarantee you, if you assemble 100 people and the thoughtful people in the 50 to 70 age range in a room, and you ask them this question, a lot of people are going to agree that the older you get, the flimsier the subjective-objective distinction feels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, um, I mean, I just had so many experiences in my life. I, uh, when About 1981 or 1982, I had two wonderful sons, and they were almost teenagers by that time, and I'd always wanted a daughter. And... Um, so, but my wife had had trouble, and so it wasn't good for her to have another pregnancy and so on. So just in this little reverie, it was not a prayer even, it was just a daydream, I adopted a Native American daughter. Mm-hmm. But I never put any actual effort into it. I, not even a prayer, I didn't even, and I just sort of had it, I entertained the fantasy, well... 19 years later, just like by magic, it occurred. So, I mean, she's 18 years old now, So, I, but we adopted her at birth. And um, these things that you just sort of, 
they come up in your mind almost as fantasies, and then without you putting any more effort into them, they magically get fulfilled. And I'm sure lots of people listening to us right now, I guarantee you, Scott, are going to say exactly right on, because this is, this is part of human nature, as I can. It's like um, it's almost like premonitions. How so frequently I found with the um, with the final words project is people often know the exact day, even maybe the time that they're going to die. They have this sense of knowing, and it's you know obviously a little different than what Raymond said, but there does seem to be a way that we know before the before we know. <laughs> it's like foreshadowing of some kind. And, of course, we don't know what comes first, uh, you know, in the case of Raymond's story, but, you know, whether it's the thought of it or whether it already exists and then we just step into its reality. But with the dying, it's so common that, well, my father, my father did it. He, again, this is a man who did not believe in angels. And uh, three days before he died, he said, uh, three days left, three days left, um, uh, something like it's a shame, three days left. And then, absolutely, three days later, he passed away. Oh, that's what he said. The angels, the angels, the angels say three days left, and then and then he um, passed away. So three days later. So it, you know, is that just coincidence? Possibly. But when you hear from, as I have, from so many people that this kind of knowing um, that they're going to die at some point, or again with my father, six months before he passed on, there was really no indication that there was a very major, you know, anything uh, major in his health. He, a friend of ours said, Marty, um, I want to get a photograph of you. So he was out, uh, out in the back and he wrote on his hand, um, here, here, take a picture of this. And he wrote the word visitor, visitor. And he said, yeah, I'm just visiting the planet. And, you know, it was sort of strange. You know, six months before he passed, that, that, that photograph was captured and he said those things. So it is, it seems like, you know, maybe we are co-authoring this narrative with, with the source or God or, or something. But um, that this story is an important part of who we are, and it also seems to reveal itself before it actually takes place. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. I could. I, I need to take the bottom era break, Lisa and, and Raymond. But I could talk with you both for hours. Likewise, Scott. This is wonderful. Thank you. The uh, the magic of the conversation, and and how it encourages us to be open to possibilities. I think is mm-hmm. so timely uh, at this point in our human existence, and it's it's our conversation what we're having today that makes me want to walk around with a. Uh, a baseball glove on my hand just in case there is a baseball or softball that falls out of the sky and I can't catch it <laughs> just to be a so um, with that metaphor uh, please stay tuned uh, we're going to take the bottom of the hour break this will be a little bit longer so it'll allow you to get up and use the bathroom or stretch your legs and we'll come up and uh, when we're back uh, Raymond and Lisa please tell us what people can find when they go to the University of Heaven, uh, dot com website, okay? Great. Thank you. We'll be back with Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. Dr. Moody is the author of Life After Life and Glimpses of Eternity, and Lisa Smart is the author of Words at the Threshold, founder of the Final Words Project. 
and they collaborate with the University of Heaven. That website again is theuniversityofheaven.com and finalwordsproject.org. Jim and I are going to replenish our coffee cups here, and uh, we've got more coming up. Please stay right there. We'll be right back. in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from the local venues with listings here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Sunday, August 4th, Hurricane Ruth plays the Zoo Bar at 5, followed by Zularius at 8, and Mackenzie Jalen starts at 8 at the Playmore Ballroom. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. 
The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Colborn with Jim Shorney here, and we are exploring unexplained phenomena. It's great to have you folks with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. Next week, we've got my friends Paula Harris and Rachel Mayo and Costa Macrius. We'll be talking about UFOs, remote viewing, consciousness, and contact. My guests this morning have been Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. And um, Raymond and Lisa, when our listeners go to the website, theuniversityofheaven.com, what can they find there? Well, um, right now we just have, it's, we're, we're right between offerings, so there isn't that much, but there are videos, free videos available, but I would like to offer your listeners something this morning. I just got inspired uh, to do this. Um, how about we do a giveaway? And I would love to give out five registrations or enrollments for our $49 Psychomantium course. And all people have to do is send an email to the University of Heaven at gmail.com. And again, that's the University of Heaven at gmail.com. And um, what, just uh, write in the subject line Raymond Moody. And I'm not going to say the first five because some people are slower than others. You know, I don't want to uh, on the computer. But what I'll do is I'll print them out and then just uh, kind of put them in a hat and pick the first five. Okay. And um, we won't be offering the course until uh, late September. So I thought that'd be a fun giveaway. But people can go. There, there. The main thing we have going on right now is some really uh, terrific videos and a resource page. And we're going to have a lot more coming up in the fall. We're going to have free Zoom casts, I call them. Well, we're going to have different guests come and um, have complimentary workshops online, including, of course, Raymond. The event that, that you're mentioning here that people can uh, join kind of a raffle for, is this yeah. going to be an event that they're required to attend in person, or is this something that they would do online? Or 
great question. It's a pre-recorded course with um, a free live webinar in addition. So, And that free live webinar will be recorded. So they'll have a pre-recorded course, and then they'll have a chance to meet with Raymond and ask their questions based on what they um, learned in the recorded course. Mm-hmm. And, and that will be um, taped for them also. So, yes. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, folks, you heard about this uh, offer here. So uh, let's give the uh, email address again, and then she will um, print them out and then get five of those selected here. So what's the email address that people can can join this raffle for? It's theuniversityofheaven at gmail.com. And if you would, in the subject line, put Raymond Moody. Because that will help me okay. help me organize it. Um, there's a blog there also on the website. What about oh, the, what's going on with the blog there? Oh, thanks so much for mentioning that. Um, yes, and people have said that that's one of the features they most love about our website. We have Dr. Kenneth Ring, Suzanne Geisman, um, mm-hmm. Jeff O'Driscoll, who else? Reverend Kevin Lee, who's a wonderful psychic. Uh, Bill Phillips, just. Every, every 10 days or so, we have another um, expert and also community members um, write about their ideas, their research, their experience. And we have both video blogs and uh, just, you know, print blogs. And uh, the feedback we've gotten is people just absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. So, yes, come check out our blogs. We've got some fabulous, fabulous authors. Uh, perhaps a final question, Raymond, for you and Lisa. Uh, your your work to date, what has it taught you about living life with gratitude and thankfulness? That has really sort of gradually sunk in with me, um, <laughs> Scott. So thank you so much for that. And I, I do think I thank God every morning and every evening and sometimes several times during the day for my family and all the this wonderful experience of life and uh, thank you so much for asking that and and thank you so much for having me on the program and thanks also to the people listening in it's funny you know raymond moody i think his book sold 13 million copies his first book and you know he's written you know he has a he's a phd in philosophy plus he's a medical doctor i mean this is a man who would have every reason in the world to be arrogant you know i mean you know if someone wanted to be right and um i've worked with him i've known him as a friend and a colleague now um for about seven years and I've been really impressed with his, his gratitude. And one of the reasons I mention it is because this research, this near-death experience research, it's humbling. And it's, hum- it's humbled me. I like to think I've also grown more grateful and humble as I've done this work. And it's first, of course, been an honor to work with Raymond because I, I, you know, when I first met him, I was so blown away because I expected someone to be, you know, very full of themselves or something and he was the most humble person I, i've actually probably ever met just just about so this near-death experience research the more i've learned the final words research the more i i study the mystery the more grateful and humble i've become as well so yes this, this work definitely um has inspired me and 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 made me more grateful and i have a great mentor who whose work um has definitely 
um, made him a very uh, person of great regard and and humble, which is just remarkable to me because he has every reason not to be. <laughs> uh, Raymond, if, if you could take the next 60 seconds and simply speak from your heart to the folks listening, uh, what might you share? Well, you know what I'm, I'm moved to share is, uh, you know, a lot of people over the years have asked about is there a rational basis for thinking there's an afterlife. And, uh, you know, as a professor of logic, I've always been very guarded about that. But um, I want to say yes, I do think now, and I, I'm as sure of this as I am anything in my work, and that is that we actually do now have a roadway to genuine, rational investigation of life after death. That is right around the corner. I think we have now entirely new ways of actually working on our own minds to prepare it to to think rationally about this biggest question of existence. So um, I am I am confident to say that now we we're at a kind of flexion point here. I think we're that we're now at a place where we can really begin to get genuine rational enlightenment on this question of life after death. And Lisa, how about you? What would you say to well, folks listening? Thank you. Um, on our website, uh, we have an hour-long video um, right on the homepage that's called I'm Convinced. It's right on the top of the homepage. Mm-hmm. And it's Raymond's whole, um, you know, what, it's been about 50 years, Raymond, of in inquiry into this question. And I think people, and it's you know, a complimentary video, and I think people might really enjoy listening to that because you'll hear some of the ideas and research that has guided Raymond to say, I'm convinced, right, Raymond? So that yeah. would be my last word. Is I talk about final words. That's my final word. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart, thank you so much for taking time from your schedules uh, your Saturday morning, your families uh, to be with us. And the door is always open to you both here and exploring unexplained phenomena. And I wish you well. well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been delightful. That's a pleasure. Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart, the collaborative effort is the University of Heaven. And when you put .com on the end of that, you can get that right there on your computer. The University of Heaven. Also, finalwordsproject.org. And they have a a webinar coming up in September that if you can email the universityofheaven at gmail.com and in the subject line put Raymond Moody... You may be one of the five people that gets selected for that, that webinar. Thanks again to uh, Dr. Moody and to Ms. Smart for their appearance today. Stay tuned for, um, well, we don't know the gentleman's name, but it's Beta Radio. Beta Radio, yes. And it's a, a fun test kitchen, if you will, for future shows and topics that comes up within just a matter of minutes here. Next week, we invite Paula Harris, 
Rachel Mayo and Costa Macrias to the show. We'll be talking about UFOs, remote viewing, consciousness and contact. Um, two weeks from today, Preston Dennett, schoolyard UFO encounters, 100 true accounts. And three weeks from today, Brent Rains, his brand new book, John A. Keel, The Man, the Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. Uh, Brent has got uh, the online magazine, apmagazine.info, and I was honored to be asked to be a part of that, and Brent and I did an interview that's now part of that August issue of AP, which stands for Alternate Perception, AP Magazine at apmagazine.info. So I have a hard time listening to myself. I'm one of the most self-critical people. So do people we, Scott. So do we. On the, on the planet. But if you're so moved, you can go to uh, AP, um, apmagazine.info and you can hear the recorded interview. And I'm kidding, of course. Uh, we talk about a, a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, Jim, uh, what do you have for the rest of the weekend? What are you planning? Uh, family reunion tomorrow. Wonderful. So that's going to be fun. I give thanks for family, and I hope you have a, a incredible experience. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And you'll be talking about that relative and the recordings, right? <laughs> Maybe. Well, you should. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to play some guitar today, and... Uh, I'm going to enjoy the day. I've got my baseball glove out in the car. I'm going to be expectant of maybe a baseball or a softball falling from the sky. Thanks so much for listening to our, our show today. I'm Scott Colborne. Until next week, walk in beauty.